Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Mark, the 12th chapter, where my Bible is opened up. Mark, chapter 12. That is where we will be for the entirety of the lesson. I'll encourage you to be opening up a Bible or be firing up an electronic device that's got a Bible on it. And let's all be getting over to Mark, chapter 12, as we prepare to immerse ourselves in the Word of God for these next few minutes. It is great to see everybody today. I'll just join in the welcome from earlier. Glad that you're here. We do have a really good number today. we got folks that are visiting with us, and we're really glad that you've come our way and hope that you're finding everything that we do today to be in harmony with God's Word. And if it's not, you, you feel free to bring that up to us. Ask a question and point out where we might be wrong, and we'll be glad to sit down with the Bible and discuss those things. And especially for these next few minutes, if I say something that's just off-kilter, doesn't seem to be jiving with what the Scriptures teach, please, please bring that to my attention and we will sit down with the Bible and discuss those things as well. This morning is kind of a special edition of Q&A morning because usually Q&A is a phenomenon that happens on Sunday nights. But you know what? Every now and then I will get a question that I think is just so good and so important that it needs to be bumped up to the AM service. And that is the case this morning with the question that is before us. Let's set the stage for all of that by reading together in Mark chapter 12, kind of a lengthy reading here. Read with me beginning in verse 18. In Mark chapter 12 beginning in verse 18, we're told that Sadducees came to Jesus. And the Sadducees are those who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, that the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Very tired, I would imagine. Verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven all had her as a wife. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let me just begin by throwing out some questions, some hypothetical questions. You don't need to answer these out loud. You just kind of think about these questions in your mind. Uh, First of all, if Jurassic Park was real, would you want to visit and go there? If someone offered you $1 million to not shave or wear deodorant or brush your teeth or take a shower for a whole year... Would you do it? If I heard somebody say no. If a grizzly bear and a great white shark got into a fight, who would win that fight? All of those are hypothetical questions. 
And you know what? We kind of like questions like that. It's kind of fun when we're sitting around with a group of people and somebody tosses out a question like that and we kind of go around and see what everybody would say. I would do that or I wouldn't do that or here's who I think would win in a fight between Spider-Man and Batman. Batman wins every single time. There's just all kinds of outrageous hypotheticals that we like to debate. And the reason that we like to debate those kinds of questions is because is because there really isn't any answer. They are unsolvable. They are unanswerable. And while that can be kind of fun and kind of entertaining for us to do, you should know that what we're reading here in Mark chapter 12, eh, there's nothing fun and entertaining about this. When the Sadducees come to Jesus in verse 18, and they ask their hypothetical question, it wasn't for fun. It wasn't to be entertaining. What this was, was a hand grenade. And it was tossed into the middle of that conversation to blow everything up. The Sadducees had a very deadly agenda here. Their goal was to simply make Jesus look bad. They were trying to undermine what He had been teaching about the resurrection and about the afterlife. And so they concoct this big harebrained kind of uh, story and scenario and they pull the pin on that question and they lob it into the mix of everything convinced Jesus isn't going to be able to answer that. He's not going to be able to give an answer. He's going to look like a fool. Everybody's going to think that he's stupid. And you know what my guess is? My guess is is that a lot of us had maybe had a very similar encounter to the one that Jesus had here in Mark chapter 12. Have you ever had a religious discussion with somebody? And somebody in the course of that discussion comes up with some outrageous hypothetical and they toss it into the mix in an effort to just kind of blow the whole thing up. For example, have you ever been talking to somebody about baptism? And you're kind of just going through the Scriptures and you're just laying out an airtight case for baptism? Acts 2.38 stacked on top of Acts 22.16, throw in 1 Peter 3.21, Galatians 3.27, Mark 16.16. You're doing all this. You're trying to show and prove the point that the Bible says that baptism is essential for salvation. You need to be baptized in order to be saved. And here it comes. Somebody lobs into the conversation. What about the guy out in the middle of the desert who wants to be baptized but can't find any water. What about that? Or maybe somebody says, hey, what about the guy on the deserted island? I mean, way off in the far reaches of the ocean, some undiscovered place. He's never heard the gospel. He's never even seen a Bible before. He doesn't know the first thing about baptism. What about that guy? Or maybe you've been asked, what about the guy who's on the way to the baptistry and as he's backing out of his driveway, oh no, a tree falls, slams on top of the car, crushes and kills him on the spot. You ever been asked those questions? Those are not hypothetical hypotheticals. Those are hypotheticals that I, all of those specifically, I have been asked multiple times. Those are hypothetical questions that are designed to blow up the case for baptism. They are designed to absolutely destroy what the Bible says about salvation. And so the question for us then becomes, well, what do we do about that? What do we do whenever those hand grenades are lobbed into a religious discussion? How do we handle that? 
How do we, if possible at all, do we put the pin back into that grenade before it detonates and just ruins everything? Well, this morning, I want to talk about that very thing. I want to talk about how to deal with those kinds of hypothetical questions that get commonly commonly tossed around in an effort to undermine God's plan of salvation as revealed in His Word. And I must just kind of confess to you right here at the top that when it comes to handling hypotheticals, I, I don't know what to do, but Jesus does. Jesus knows what to do. Jesus knows exactly what to do and what to say. And in Mark chapter 12, Jesus gives us three great principles that really help us when we find ourselves in these circumstances, followed by an amazing bonus principle at the end. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to unpack Mark chapter 12 and see how Jesus helps us in these discussions? Principle number one. Jesus helps us, first of all, to understand that asking these kinds of questions, it's just wrong. It is. It's just flat wrong. Now, I am sure that the Sadducees thought that they had just developed a real stumper here. And I'm sure they thought that everybody was going to laugh and they were going to giggle when Jesus was asked this question and He wouldn't be able to give a solid, concrete answer. But guess what? That's not what happened. Because in verse 24, Jesus just starts off His response by saying, Is this not the reason you are wrong? And in case they missed it on the first go-around, Jesus gives them a second helping of that at the end of verse 27. He says, you are quite wrong. End of discussion. End of debate. In fact, you'll notice at the end of verse 27, the Sadducees don't have a response. They don't have a rejoinder. They don't have a rebuttal. They are done. Jesus says, boys, you're wrong. Now, I always want to be careful here, talking about the question that they had brought. Because somebody is liable to say and point out, hey, 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 I thought asking questions was good. Don't we try to encourage that? Encourage folks to ask Bible questions? What do you mean that it might be bad or wrong to ask this kind of question? Well, would you look again at verse 18? In verse 18, I want you to notice that this question is coming from some guys who had already made up their mind. Verse 18 says that these were the fellows who were saying, there is no resurrection. This is why it's wrong, is because it's not a real question. These guys aren't searching for the truth. They're not trying to find out and discover what God says about this. They've already made up their minds. And so all this is, is this is merely a tactic. This is gamesmanship. It is an attempt to try and test and discredit Jesus in all of His teaching. And guess what? Jesus has no interest in that. Jesus says, I'm not playing those kinds of games. I'm not going to be involved in that. He just says flat out, you are wrong. And the reason you're wrong is because your heart and your basic assumptions are flawed and wrong. Bad hearts, listen very carefully here. Bad hearts ask bad questions. Bad hearts ask hypothetical questions. In fact, to be very clear about that, there's really a sharp contrast to some of the other encounters 
that Jesus has with people who come and ask Him various questions. In fact, just look on down in the text. Look at Mark chapter 12. Look at the very next verse, verse 28. We're told that a scribe comes up to Jesus. And he asks, he asks a good question. And in fact, he does have an honest heart. He asks the question, what is the great commandment? And Jesus is willing to answer that question. Verse 30, Jesus says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Verse 31, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The scribe's response, verse 32, you're right, teacher. You have truly said this. This is exactly right. That discussion continues on for several more verses. All of that culminating in verse 34 when Jesus says, You, my friend, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You see what happens? You see what happens whenever people bring sincere questions to Jesus? Jesus is willing to talk about that. Jesus is willing to engage that conversation. And I think this is important for you and I to understand. That whenever we're talking with somebody, whenever we're trying to study with somebody about these things, and they really are trying to learn the truth, they're like this scribe here in verse 28, we want to engage those questions. We do. We want to encourage more of that. We want to try to walk them through various scenarios. We want to help them to see how the Bible works in all these different kinds of ways. But in this circumstance here in verse 18, what these Sadducees had brought Jesus This is an entirely different animal, isn't it? This isn't a sincere question. These aren't people seeking after the truth. No, these are people just trying to destroy Jesus, trying to make His teaching and Him entirely just look foolish. And what Jesus says about that is He says, boys, your hypotheticals, they're just wrong. And maybe the biggest reason that those hypotheticals are wrong is because it's wrong to try and catch God in some kind of a contradiction. You know, do we really imagine that on the day of judgment, God's going to say to some lost soul, He's going to say, depart from me. You didn't obey my gospel. You didn't do what I commanded in order for people to be saved. And that person's going to respond to the Lord by saying, now you listen here, God. You can't tell me to depart. Because there was a man once upon a time on a deserted island somewhere who never heard the gospel. And so I'm coming in because he's getting in. Do we really imagine that that's how that's going to play out? That's ridiculous. That's outrageous. That, in the words of Jesus, that's wrong. Because it is wrong to try and find some some loophole, if you will, so that we don't actually have to do what God told us to do. You know, somehow I'm afraid that people have developed this picture in their mind of what Judgment Day is going to be like. I think folks have read those verses in Matthew 25. Do you know that passage in Matthew 25 that describes the judgment scene? Jesus is separating the sheep and the goats. And then there's that discussion that kind of ensues with some people talking to Jesus. And they ask Jesus, hey, well, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you naked? When did we see you thirsty? And Jesus is answering them. I think in people's minds what they have decided is that that's how it's going to happen on judgment day. That there's going to be this big conversation going on. It's going to kind of almost be like a courtroom scene. Where you can lawyer up, and you can present your case, and you can then somehow argue your way into heaven. Listen, that is not going to happen. Nobody is going to debate God on judgment day. 
Nobody's going to verbally pin God or outwit God and suddenly God's going to say, Oh, oh, I had no idea. Thank you so much for bringing that to... I hadn't thought about the guy on the deserted island. I never thought about the guy out in the middle of the desert couldn't find any water. Boy, I tell you what, thank you. You know what? You just come right on into heaven. That is not how that's going to happen. You know what is going to happen? And you know what does actually work? Doing what the Lord says. That's what works. Obedience. Simply obeying God's commands. That's what's going to work in the day of judgment. When God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, did Abraham start looking for some kind of a loophole out of that? When God told Noah to build essentially an ocean liner, did Noah try to work his way out of that and find a loophole there? When Joshua was told, you need to march around the walls of Jericho and do that several times, did he try to find a loophole? No. Why don't people just do what God says to do? And that really is the issue here, I think, at the end of the day. These hypothetical questions, they're wrong because really what's happening there is people are just looking for some excuse to grab onto so that they don't have to obey God. You think about that. The person who asks about the tree falling on the guy or the man out in the middle of the desert, what they're just simply trying to do is get out of baptism. That's what they're trying to do. And the person who asks about the guy on the deserted island or maybe in some weird far off place in the Amazon jungle, that person just doesn't want to serve God. That's why they're asking that. One writer put it this way. He said these questions, these questions are just trying to provide intellectual cover for hard hearts. You know what at the end of the day, that is what's going on. Hard hearts. And Jesus sees right through that. Jesus is not fooled by that at all. And Jesus does not ever hesitate for one second to say, you are wrong. Your thinking is wrong. And I think that provides a really important starting point for us. If someone attempts to toss a hypothetical hand grenade into the middle of the discussion, then that might well be an indication to us that this discussion is over that there really is not going to be anything good coming from this. We are wasting our time. We are spinning our wheels here because this person is not truly searching for the truth. Which is exactly where Jesus goes next. Because did you notice in verse 24? Jesus says the reason that you are wrong is because you do not know the Scripture. In fact, Jesus doubles down on that. Goes at it again, verse 26. Jesus says, have you not read? Have you not read in the law of Moses? Come on, fellas. Ain't ain't none of y'all got a Bible? Ain't none of you all ever read the Scriptures before? Haven't you read the Bible? Because the Bible, the Scriptures, they have the answers. I need to say that again for us. Scripture has all the answers that we need. God's Word equips us with everything that we would ever need to do and to be and to know in order to be acceptable in God's sight. Which means that if we don't know about something, then what does that mean? That means we don't need to know. We don't need to know because the Bible does not deal in explicit detail every single crazy situation that people might come up with. The Bible tells us instead what we need to know, not necessarily everything that we might be curious about. 
Do any of you know what the, uh, you know what the Talmud is? The Talmud is a collection of Jewish writings that kind of started to be compiled and collected uh, after the temple was destroyed by Roman armies in A.D. 70. The Pharisees realized that the center of their religion could no longer be the temple because, well, because the temple was now gone. And so increasingly then, they began to fixate on the law, the law of Moses, and in particular, all of the various oral traditions that the rabbis and the teachers had, had spoken and had been passed down orally through the years. They began to take all of those teachings and those traditions and they began to kind of put them down in writing. We need to write those things down so that we'll remember them. And then they began to codify those things. That is, kind of put them in different kinds of you know categories of how they would fit in various things. And then they began to expand upon it. Let's expound upon all of those ideas. And it took a while, several hundred years in fact, to finally get all of that information down. But the idea there was to to expand the law of God so that it would cover every conceivable circumstance. I mean, any scenario that you could possibly imagine, you could go to this book and it's going to tell you exactly what to do. And you know what? They kind of got there. Because now, now the Talmud is 63 volumes large. It is six. Thousand pages long for a frame of reference. War and Peace, which is kind of often cited as being you know the, one of the longest books to read. War and Peace is about a thousand pages. This is six times that. The last Harry Potter book, the last b- book in the Harry Potter series, was about six hundred pages, and lots of people said that book was too long. This is ten times the length of that. The Talmud is humongous, and guess what? It covers. It covers seemingly everything. For example, it covers all the details you can imagine about the law of the Sabbath. The Talmud actually has a section in it. You might might not even believe this. It has a section in it that deals with what you can and cannot do if a deer jumps into your house on the Sabbath day. You wouldn't want to do something that might constitute work in trying to get this deer out of your house. So the Talmud actually explains what to do if a random deer just comes into your house. Was that a problem back then? Just deers just jumping through the window at random occasions? I don't know. Or you know, what about, what about going to the orchard to pick and to gather some apples on the Sabbath? Well, that sounds like that might tread awful close to to work, and so we wouldn't want to be involved in that. But here's a question. What if you had a bowl of apples, and you had them in your house, and they were sitting on the table, and on the Sabbath day you accidentally knocked them off the table, and all the apples fell down on the floor? Would it be okay to bend over and pick them up and gather them back into the bowl, or would that be considered work? Well, hey, you don't need to wonder and worry about that. Because the rabbis covered it. Volume 28, chapter 16, section C, paragraph 4. What to do in the case of an accidental fruit dropping. 63 volumes of that kind of stuff. Do you see what happens when we are not content with what the Bible simply and plainly says? Do you see what we are not, what happens when we are not content? with what God's Word does reveal to man? Maybe the problem here, I suspect for folks, when they lob out these hypotheticals, I think a big problem is is there's just a lack of humility there. 
You know, our society today really struggles with being able to say, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it seems that there is just not a single problem in this world, whether it's terrorism or world poverty or the issue of immigration or North Korea. There's not a single issue out there that somebody doesn't think that if they stop and think about that for half a second, aha, I know what to do. I know exactly the answer to that big question and that big problem. I tell you, we ought to just nuke them all. That's what we ought to do. I'm right. I will just free college for everybody. That's what we ought to do. People just feel the need to just have an immediate answer for everything. When instead, there's occasions that we need to just be humble enough to say, you know what? I don't know. That's a big question. There's a lot of layers to that. And you know what? I just, I just don't know. I just don't have enough information to venture against. I'm not really in a position to offer up a really informed opinion there. I don't know. And you know what? That especially needs to be the case whenever we're talking about something that the Bible hasn't revealed. Jesus says we need to read the Bible. That's what He asked those guys. Haven't you read the Scriptures? And we need to be satisfied with what the Bible says. Which means then, if somebody comes along and they want to ask the question, Hey, what do I need to do to be saved? i got answers for you. You need to read Acts 2.38. You need to do what Peter told those people to do on the day of Pentecost. Hey, what do I need to do to be saved? Hey, I'll tell you what you can do. You read Acts 22.16 and you see the example of that guy Paul. You just do what he did. Follow his example. Hey, well, what do I need to do to be saved? I'll tell you what. Go over here to Mark 16.16. 16, listen to the words of Jesus and then just do that. You do that. But then as soon as somebody comes along and says, well, well what about this hypothetical? I don't have anything. I ain't got a verse for that. Well, what about this hypothetical? Once again, I got nothing, friend. Well, what about all these other hypotheticals? Hey, we're not going there. Because we are not going to create our own version of the Talmud. We will be content with what the Bible says. We will say what the Bible says. And guess what? That'll be enough. And the reason that it will be enough, thirdly, is because we trust the Lord. That's what we, we trust the Lord and His power. And that is the third part of the response that Jesus gives to those Sadducees. Look again in Mark 12. Jesus begins there by saying in verse 24, you're just wrong. Then He says, you don't know the Scriptures. Then He completes that thought in verse 24 by saying, you also don't know the power of God. You don't understand what God is capable of doing. And so, when someone asks, what's going to happen to that person on the yet-to-be-discovered island? What's going to happen to that individual? What's going to happen to all those people out there in the world who are apparently getting clobbered over the head with trees on their way to the baptistry? What's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to all those people who are out in the middle of the desert looking for water because they want to be baptized, but they die before they find it? You know what's going to happen to them? I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen to them. God is going to handle it. That's what's going to happen. God is going to take care of that. By His power, He has those circumstances and a million others that you could think of, He has got them well under control. And here's the good news. Whatever the situation is, and I'll tell you, you can dream up the most far-fetched scenario and hypothetical situation that your mind will allow. 
God is going to do in that circumstance what is completely and exactly right. You can bank on that. You can be sure of that. And you want some more good news here? God doesn't need any help with that. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need anybody else's advice to try and tell Him what He ought to do. God doesn't need anybody's assistance in those matters. And the problem I think here is people just don't seem to give God enough credit. Those Sadducees, they came up to Jesus thinking that, oh, He's just going to be totally unraveled at this thought of a woman who's been married seven times. As if somehow that's just going to flummox the Lord and He just wouldn't know what to say in that moment. And in much the same way, people today seem to think that a guy on a remote island or down in the deepest parts of the Amazon jungle or this person over here who's never heard about the gospel ever whatsoever, oh, I tell you what, God God just doesn't know what to do about that. God's not able to somehow reach that individual. Or the guy who dies on the car ride to the baptistry. Or the guy who can't find water out in the middle of the desert to be baptized. I guess that just means God isn't able to help that person. God can't provide what that individual needs. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I'll remind you that we're talking about the same God who provided not only water, but also a preacher for the Ethiopian man who was out in the middle of a desert. And it is the same God as well who did not allow that Gentile centurion Cornelius to die in the heat of battle because he wanted to give him the opportunity to hear and respond and obey the gospel. And it is also the very same God, I'll remind you, who has revealed Himself through nature. Paul preached about that in Acts chapter 17. So that even godless and ignorant people, even they are without excuse. You know what all of those things are illustrations of? Those are illustrations of the power of God. And I trust that power. In fact, as you look at Mark chapter 12, God's power is so great that He can even do things that are beyond our understanding. Beyond what we can comprehend with our minds. Look at verse 25. Jesus looks at the Sadducees and He says to them, you guys don't even know how eternity is going to work. In verse 25, He says to them, Mark chapter 12, He says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Jesus says, what you think... You don't have a clue. It's just totally different in heaven. You fellows are over here speculating about things that you don't even understand and you really can't understand. Why don't you just hush? That's what you need to do. Just be quiet and let God take care of it. How much of our conversations that we have with others about these hypothetical types of things, how much of our conversations ultimately lead right here and really fit right here. We don't have any clue of how all those different hypothetical scenarios are going to play out. I don't have a clue. Which means we need to trust God's power. God, the Creator of the universe, the One who we just beseeched a few moments ago in prayer, as the Creator of all, He is going to take care of it. And I'll trust Him to take care of it well. Now, that's the three main principles from Mark chapter 12 that Jesus enumerates in His conversation with the Sadducees. But I promised that there would also be a bonus. Would you like that bonus now? Did you notice in Mark chapter 12 as we were reading there, did you notice that when the Sadducees brought this big hypothetical question, oh man, 
We got a brain buster for Jesus here. Did you notice that Jesus never gave an answer to their question? You notice that? The question that they asked in verse 23 about whose wife this woman was going to be in the resurrection, Jesus never explicitly answered that. Jesus did not walk them through all the mechanics of how all that's going to play out. Jesus did not draw them a diagram, it's going to go here, then this, then that. No, Jesus doesn't do any of that. Now, Jesus certainly could have done that. He could have, couldn't He? You think Jesus doesn't know about how all that's going to work in the resurrection? Of course Jesus knows. Jesus could have explained every bit of that if He chose. But He didn't. And why didn't Jesus give them an answer? Well, because they had bad hearts. And because their question was an attempt to discredit Him and to discredit His Word. Because they weren't content simply with what the Bible did say about these matters. Because they needed to learn to trust who God is and what God will do. That He will do what is right. That He will do what is best. That He is well capable of sorting these matters out. And so for Jesus to engage in some big hypothetical with these fellas, it would do nothing but get into a debate over something that really didn't have anything to do with the Sadducees. What those Sadducees needed to do was they needed to focus on their hearts. They needed to focus on their attitudes. They needed to focus on what the Bible says to them for their lives. Can I suggest to you this morning that when somebody tosses you one of those hypothetical questions, we need to do exactly like Jesus did. And that is, we need to not try and get involved in providing an answer for that question. Because all that does is it ends up shifting the focus off of our personal responsibility And it shifts it over here onto some kind of far-fetched scenario that in all likelihood will never ever happen to any of us. And the truth of the matter is, let me issue a warning here. Even if you did try to answer one of those hypotheticals, oh, I tell you what, now I know exactly what's going to happen to that man off in the desert. I know exactly what's going to happen to that guy on the far-off island. I know exactly, let me tell you exactly what's going to happen to the guy who was killed by the tree. Listen to me very carefully. You don't know the answer. You think you know the answer. In fact, you may even have some biblical principles that might lead you to that conclusion. But you don't know with 100% certainty the answer to those questions because the Bible does not specifically and explicitly deal with those kinds of things. And so if you make the decision that you are going to speak where God has not spoken, what's going to happen is is you're going to end up derailing that conversation. And instead of talking about that person and talking to that person that is standing right there in front of you, who is not on a deserted island, who is not in the middle of the desert looking for water, who is not getting clubbered over the head by trees, then what's going to happen is, is we're going to end up talking about random imaginary guy in some random imaginary world. That, folks, is a waste of time. It is fruitless and it is vain. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus looked at the people who were standing right in front of them and He says, I want to talk about you. That's what I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about this hypothetical person over here who may or may not exist. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about you, how you are wrong and how you need to read the Bible and how you need to trust in God. 
Jesus put the focus on real people, not some imaginary circumstance. And I'm going to tell you this morning, we must, we must do the same. We need to be ready to say, you know what? That's an interesting question. There's a lot there that you could think about, lots of ways that could go. But you know what? I just don't really know what's going to happen there. I don't know what's going to happen in that hypothetical. I'm just going to trust that the Lord is going to take care of that. And He's going to do the right thing. Now let me ask you about you. Let me ask you about your soul. Let me ask you about your level of trust in the Lord. Let me ask you about whether you are obeying God in His Word. What is it that's preventing you from being baptized? What is it that is hindering you from obeying the Gospel? In fact, that note seems like a perfect note to extend the invitation of the Lord on right now. What is it that is preventing you? Dream up all kinds of hypotheticals. Our minds can just go crazy with those things. At the end of the day, this is about you and the Lord. One day you're going to stand in front of the Lord. And you will give an answer for how you have lived this life. Not that you're going to be able to barter and argue back and forth about that, but you're going to have to give an answer for your life. What are you going to do in that moment? You know, bounce off one of those hypotheticals? Good luck. This right now is the moment to act. This is the moment to push aside all of those foolish arguments that people make for why they shouldn't be baptized, why I don't have to do that, why that's not essential for my salvation. This is the moment and this is the time to just do what the Bible says, to access the grace and the mercy and the blood of Jesus and be covered in it so that we can be saved and we can go to heaven. You need to do that this morning. All things are ready for that to happen in a relatively short amount of time. We can do that right now. If you'll make your way down front, make those wishes known while we stand and while we sing.